Well, concerns about inflation and a dangerous new variant of the COVID-19 virus are growing. The most urgent threat to Canada still remains the flooding in British Columbia and the state of emergency there. As that province faces more storms, the military is helping out, sandbagging, helping to repair infrastructure. But what's coming now? Well, let's find out. Joining me now, CTV's Kevin Gallagher is in the province. Kev. Evan, members of the Canadian Forces and community members here in Abbotsford have been working overtime to try and keep rising water levels at bay. Now, the mayor here in Abbotsford has also said that you know they've done all they can to repair the damaged dike that burst, of course, nearly two weeks ago and started letting water into Sumas Prairie. Now, uh, this community is one example of many across the province that have been dealing with this extreme weather that has really resulted in some catastrophic events, landslides, highways out, supply chain issues, and all of these things are issues that Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and BC Premier John Horgan talked about as well, and they've created a council of sorts that will put federal ministers, provincial ministers, and members of indigenous groups on the, basically the same meeting board to try and discuss ways to get out of this current crisis, but also plan better mitigation for flood, for climate change, for adaptation of infrastructure that can better handle uh, more extreme weather events that unfortunately many climate scientists say are on the way. Now, this is something that everyone here is monitoring, Evan, and we hope, of course, that many of the storms to come over the next week will not devastate communities like Abbotsford, as we've seen so far. All right, thanks for that, Kevin. Meantime, as the military is on the ground in B.C., they're also welcoming in a new top soldier. After months of scandal within the armed forces, General Wayne Eyre is now taking on the permanent role as the chief of the defense staff. General Eyre and I will continue to work hard in reforming the culture of the Canadian Armed Forces. We need to ensure that we have an institution where everyone who puts on a uniform feels safe and respected and protected. General Eyre has been acting in the role for nearly a year, and in that time, the sexual misconduct crisis has only deepened. Remember back in February, Admiral Art McDonald voluntarily stepped aside from the top job over a sexual misconduct allegation just weeks after he took the job. Military police later concluded there was not enough evidence to charge Admiral McDonald, but he didn't get his job back. The deadline has also just expired for past and current military members to join a class action lawsuit against the military over sexual misconduct. And get this, almost 19 thousand people have signed on, almost 19,000. So how will General Eyre tackle the military misconduct issue? Can he restore faith in the Canadian Armed Forces? Let's find out. Joining me now, the new Chief of the Defence Staff, General Wayne Eyre. Sir, thanks for your service to the country, first of all, and congratulations on the new role. Um, it's a tough role, and I spoke to the Minister of Defence uh, last week, and she said your number one goal is to fix what they call the broken culture inside the military due to sexual misconduct. What is your most urgent uh, first things you need to do? So first of all, thanks for uh, having me on your uh, show. Uh, it, it's true, culture change is right at the top of the list of everything else we need to do to uh, uh, to make our military a better place. Um, and it's it's aspects of our culture that we need to address first. So let me be absolutely clear. We have aspects of our culture that we, we must retain. 
the willingness to uh, put oneself in harm's way to, uh, to protect others, the willingness to leave home and put service above self, the willingness to be part of something better. But it's the exclusionary aspects of our culture uh, that have really come to the forefront. So uh, bringing in the value of inclusion, assessing inclusion, making it part and parcel of what we do every day. Because let's face it, the face of Canada is changing. Talent is resident in different parts of uh, Canadian society than that mm. has been traditionally in the past. It's a paradox that as our national population is growing, our traditional recruiting pool is shrinking. So if, we're, if we want to be able to attract and retain the best talent from all segments of Canadian society, we have to embrace that uh, value of inclusion. General, the question is, why should anyone in the military or outside it trust you? And trust has been the big issue. As you know, there was a review of, of the back in uh, 2015 from the former Supreme Court Justice, Marie Duchamp. Uh, basically, nothing was implemented. Then there was another retired uh, um, Supreme Court Justice, Morris Fish, earlier this year. He said nothing's changed in terms of sexual misconduct. Now you've got another retired Supreme Court Justice, Louise Arbour, doing more recommendations. If things hadn't changed since 2015, why should people expect them to change now? Hey, nothing that I say here is going to change that impression. Uh, that trust is going to come through tangible action, tangible demonstrable action uh, on the ground. And that's what I'm aiming to deliver, action, not words. Okay. Um, what will the first action be? Because I know that the Minister of Defense has already said any allegations are going to be processed in the civil court, no longer in the military justice tribunal. So they're yanking that, uh, that out of the military. What will be the first actions that will build that trust? So you're going to see over the course of the next few weeks uh, a number of initiatives uh, that are going to be discussed in, in much more detail. So there's been a tremendous amount of work going on behind the scenes, you know, whether it's in terms of culture change, whether it's in terms of uh, um, uh, support for survivors or in terms of justice and accountability. Uh, we, we can talk about uh, what we're doing with leader selection, what we're doing in terms of changing our military ethos uh, to, to address the inclusion aspect, to address uh, the character uh, that is so necessary going forward, the character as well as competence to be able to, tr to be trusted to serve. We can talk about um, climate intervention teams that we're starting to pilot uh, as, as we speak. You know, some of the changes in leadership training that we're going to uh, be bringing in. Uh, the implementation of, uh, of uh, Bill C-77 and the Victim's Bill of Rights. Um, uh, streamlining our uh, complaint reporting system. So many initiatives, right. as I said, ongoing, the details of which we want to get out uh, very shortly. G General, the deadline passed just late last week for Canadian Armed Forces uh, personnel, past and present, and de Department of Defense personnel to submit claims in, the set in a class action settlement against the federal government, a suit against the federal government, and sexual misconduct in the military. The numbers are staggering, as you know. Nearly 19,000 people submitted claims, 33% of them in the last month alone. I think that's mind-blowing number. Nine, almost 19,000 members are signing onto a class action lawsuit on sexual misconduct. What does that number tell you about what the heck's been going on inside the military? So this number tells us a, a couple of things. You know, firstly, it shows the, uh, the breadth and the depth of the issue and the historic uh, uh, components of it. You know, secondly, it shows us that people are willing to come forward now, which we should treat as a good sign. But also, as they come forward, we have to appreciate that it's difficult, and, and in many cases, um, uh, victims can be re-traumatized. Um, but the, the stats also show us that 42% are men. 
So this is not just a woman's issue. This is a, a Canadian Armed Forces issue writ large. And it may not necessarily be a sexual issue. It, uh, it quite possibly is a, a, a abuse of power issue. So these numbers tell us a number of things. You know, some of the recommendations that were done in the Deschamps report in 2015 uh, were never actually done. For example, as I, we talked about the transferring of the investigation and prosecution of sexual misconduct cases within the military to a civilian justice system. Again, six years ago it was recommended, just done now. A, why did that take so long, and what does it tell you that it took so long? Well, as we take a look at those recommendations, I think one of the more most important ones that has not been recommend, uh, uh, fully implemented is an independent reporting system outside the chain right. of command. And I, uh, I for one, would welcome uh, a system like that if it's going to increase the, uh, the confidence of, of our members at all levels. Uh, talk about, there's a perception, frankly, that there's a boys club or a seniors club that is protecting each other. I mean, earlier this year we saw the former uh, vice chief of the defense staff, Mike Rillo, on a golf trip with the former chief of the defense staff, General Vance, who was under investigation at the time by military police. We saw the appointment of Major General Peter Daw to a new position despite on leave for writing a character reference in 2017 for a soldier found guilty of sexual assault on another military member. Um, Again, how do you dispel the perception that there is a there is a powerful boys club that is circling the wagons? So I'm not going to get into uh, any individual cases, and you know I, I I will be the first to admit that over the course of the last nine months I've had some missteps, and I've uh, I've been on a, a tremendous learning curve. But I tell you, one of the things that I have learned is um, transparency and talking about measures that we're going to take, and uh, and consultation. And, and using that as a vehicle to dispel uh, the, uh, the perception of an old boys club. It's, it's not going to happen overnight, and we're going to do this uh, step by step. I want to get at what the men and women are doing in, in British Columbia right now, that, uh, because the storms, they're facing more storms there. Um, give us a sense, I think, uh, as the defense minister told me, there's about 500 members of the military there. Can you give us some exact numbers? What they're doing right now and how long they could be out there for? So let me firstly say that I am super proud of the work that our, our members of the Canadian Armed Forces are doing to protect Canadians, uh, you know, not just in, in British Columbia, but very shortly in, uh, in Newfoundland as well. And indeed, in other parts of the, uh, of the country, as we still have troops uh, deployed uh, for some pandemic-related uh, uh, operations. Um, troops are, <clears throat> are very active in flood mitigation efforts, uh, sandbagging. They've moved out from Abbotsford to a, a number of different communities. We've got actually closer to 600 on the ground right now between the Land Task Force, Sierra Task Force, and all who are focused on this, uh, this operation. You know, for me, um, it made it very clear that this is the Canadian Armed Forces' top operational priority. Uh, as I said, we've got uh, approximately 600 troops uh, doing the business now. We have more ready to go. Uh, the assessment from the, the province is it, we've, we've, uh, we've got sufficient, but should the situation change, we will bring in more capability. General, three most dangerous situations around the world that perhaps we might see intervention or participation in the Canadian Armed Forces. What are the three most dangerous places you're watching? You know, right now, we're watching closely what's happening in uh, Ukraine with uh, the Russian buildup. We're watching very closely what's happening in Ethiopia. We're watching very closely what's happening in Lebanon. We're watching closely what's happening in uh, uh, in, the, in the South China Sea and Asia Pacific. Sorry, I think that was four, but there is no shortage of hotspots in the world. And it's, uh, like I said, it's increasingly dangerous. There is no shortage of hotspots. It could be the title of your uh, biography. Uh, General, I really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. No, thank you.
rising threats. That's the new reality facing the Liberal government as it scrambles to deal with the disastrous floods on the West Coast, storms on the East Coast, a protectionist U.S. president who just doubled the tariff on softwood lumber and is threatening to slash the tires of the Canadian auto industry with tax credits for U.S.-made cars. But the biggest threat of all? Inflation. Monthly grocery bills have already gone up hundreds of dollars. The speech from the throne mentioned inflation once. Shameful. Just once. We are extremely concerned about the rising costs of living brought to people by inflation. The member opposite talked about families. That's exactly why we're moving forward with $10 a day childcare right across the country. Affordability is the most pressing political issue. Why? No secret, the current inflation rate sits at 4.7%, an 18-year high. The Conservatives argue that inflation is the result of the Liberals' pandemic spending, even though they supported much of it. But the Liberals say no, it's a global supply chain issue, not unique to Canada. Still, what will the federal government do about it? Well, for one, they're cutting pandemic aid and need to pass new targeted pandemic aid bills quickly. One for workers, because the government's proposing a Canada worker lockdown benefit, which would provide $300 per week to workers who are under lockdown. For eligible businesses, three new initiatives would replace the rent and wage subsidies, the hardest hit business recovery program, the tourism and hospitality recovery program, and the local lockdown program. So is this the right time to pull back stimulus? Do they need to recalibrate their promised stimulus spending of another $100 billion in the next number of years? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Minister of Families, Children and Social Development, Karina Gould. Good to have you back on the program, Minister. Look, inflation and the cost of living are dominating not only the, the concerns for everyday Canadians, but now the political agenda. What in the short term, not the mid and long term, what in the short term is your government going to do to deal with the inflation crisis? Well, look, Evan, um, I think inflation is affecting the entire world right now. I mean, we're coming out of a major global pandemic. Uh, it's dominated, you know, access to supply chains. The increase in demand uh, is certainly what is contributing to this inflation crisis that the whole world is facing. But our government recognizes that making life more affordable for Canadians is something that we need to do and we need to do now. And in fact, we're doing just that. Um, I'm the Minister of Families, Children and Social Development. We are signing agreements on affordable childcare, um, which is going to make life more affordable for families. In provinces across the country, parents are going to see a 50% reduction in their childcare fees starting early next year in many provinces. Right. That's going to mean a huge difference in their ability to provide for their families um, and, you know, deal with the challenges around affordability. But I get that. But again, you know, there is a difference, as you appreciate as well as anybody, between the cost of living issue and the inflation issue. Again, uh, I recognize this is a supply chain, a global supply chain issue, but doesn't help the average person who is, who is spending more to fill their car up they're going, the cost of meat and groceries and everything is going up. Christmas and, and, and the holiday presents are going up. And again, in the United States, for example, to help the supply chain, you had the president saying, we're going to have the ports in L.A. go 24-7. They actually have genuine short-term solutions to deal with these bottlenecks. Um, I haven't heard any from the liberal government, and you keep repackaging the childcare as an inflation fighting issue when it's a it's a cost of living issue is there any short-term solution on the table 
Well, like I just want to hold on there for a second, Evan, because it's not that we're repackaging the childcare issue, it's that it's actually a measure that is going to help families. In Saskatchewan last week, they just announced that they're doing their 50% fee reduction retroactive to July 1st. So families in Saskatchewan are going to see a major change to their bottom line. That is going to help them with the high costs of raising a family. So it actually is going to be making a difference if you as a family all of a sudden are getting another $350 to $400 a month right. to help with the cost and of raising a family. And I understand that, but the, the when it comes to When it comes to supply chains, you know, I, the Minister of Transport is engaging very actively with our ports, with our supply networks around the country. Um, but this is something that is happening worldwide, and we are absolutely engaging to address supply chain issues, but it is something that is a global problem. One thing that the opposition is criticizing your government is that the stimulus is actually contributing to inflation. Yes, it's global supply chain, but even most economists say stimulus also plays a role. The question is, do we still need the $100 billion stimulus over three years that your government has promised? Given the fact that there's concern about interest rates going up, inflation is going up, uh, people clearly have more savings than they had even before the pandemic because of the pandemic relief programs, is your government reconsidering spending that $100 billion over three years and pulling back? Well, Evan, I think we need to unpack uh, what the opposition is putting forward here, because are they suggesting that we shouldn't have paid out those pandemic supports? Sure, there are some Canadians that have more savings, but there are millions of Canadians who do not and who relied on the CERB, who relied on the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy to get through the last 18 months. And in fact, there are still Canadians in certain hard-hit sectors that are relying on these recovery benefits. And so I'm actually quite concerned about what the opposition is putting forward here because it sounds to me like they wouldn't be willing to help Canadians when they needed it most. You've already pulled back the pandemic relief programs that ended on October 23rd. There was a $7.4 billion announcement on more targeted efforts that we've talked about. So the government has pulled back on supports. And, and again, I just if, if you could just answer the question, is the government even thinking about revisiting the planned stimulus given the new changing economic realities yes or no well the the real question the real answer here is that we're not out of the woods yet right we are still rebuilding our economy so even though we've seen a tremendous uh, response in terms of economic growth over the past number of months as we've come out of what we hope was the worst of the pandemic even though we've seen you know a surge in job numbers there are still sectors of the economy that need that support and we're going to continue to do that and the, the other point of that is that we are continuing to work on this transition to a greener economy. And so that stimulus is important because it's also going to help us in our fight against climate change and moving this country forward into the cleaner, greener economy that we need to be in. All right, I gotta leave it there. Minister Gould, great to have you on the program this morning. Appreciate it. Always, thanks, Evan. The Prime Minister says he doesn't think much about monetary policy. Clearly. Uh, that's no surprise, after all. It's just inflation. I am impressed to see the high esteem in which the member from Carleton seems to hold me that I was able to create a global inflation crisis with our initiatives to support Canadians through this pandemic.
So the inflation debate has taken over the political debate. The opposition contends that Canada's 4.7% level of inflation, the highest in 18 years, has been caused by the Liberals' stimulus spending and is a uniquely Canadian problem. The federal government responds by saying, no, this is a global supply chain problem, not a Canadian one, and it's caused the by the pandemic. And indeed, inflation rates in the European Union and around the world are also quite high. But what's right? And what can the federal government actually do about inflation and the rising cost of living? Should the promised billions of dollars in stimulus over the next number of years be pulled back? Let's find out. Joining me now is the special advisor with Osler, Hoskin and Harcourt, but you probably know him best as the former governor of the Bank of Canada, Stephen Polos. Uh, governor, great to have you back. Stephen Polos on, on the program and I hope you're well. Obviously, the inflation genie is out of the bottle in a way that when you were the governor and that target of 2%, we're now at 4.7%. In your view, what is the cause of high inflation? Well, most of what we're seeing, Evan, is really what I would call normalization. Uh, prices went down quite a lot across many, many sectors of the economy during the early months of the pandemic. And so the way we measure inflation, which is compared to 12 months ago, we're getting an exaggerated measurement of inflation now because the base from which we measure today's prices was low. One of the best charts I've seen for this was in the Bank of Canada's Monetary Policy Report, which measured inflation in a number of countries on a two-year basis instead of a one-year basis. And that sees through the downside, then the upside, and inflation was just a little bit above 2% in that chart. I think that's more the core rate of inflation that we're seeing, and we're getting a big energy move, and of course moves related to housing, which are true. I mean, those things are really gone up in price. Okay, so, so people are saying, okay, that may be true about two years ago, but I'm spending more on groceries, I'm spending more on gas and, and housing. Uh, and again, I'm just trying to cut through the politics because I know you don't have any political skin in the game here. You know, you know when someone says this is all because the, the, the Bank of Canada and the government spent a lot of money, there's uh, quantitative easing and, quote, the printing of money, as you might hear about it, it you know, which is not an exact description, but that's how people talk about it. Uh, and it's the stimulus that has caused inflation. Is that right? Uh, I think that's not right. Uh, in fact, uh, what the stimulus did was to keep the economy from going into a deep hole in which we would have experienced persistent deflation. And I'd like you to think about how hard it would be to experience deflation as a company with debts outstanding in a fixed amount. Uh, what that means is your ability to service the debt is declining very rapidly as the prices you can charge are going down. Those are the kinds of interactions that give depressions. And that was the biggest concern back when this all started, that we were going to have all the ingredients of another depression with deflation. So first of all, we have to uh, accept the fact that that policy response was in the right time, well intended, and it did avert all the worst calls that people were making at that time. Now, it's a matter of judgment about when everything goes back to normal. That's a very hard judgment to make. But we're in that phase now. Because I'm trying to make sure we get the, the you know, a lot of folks are going to hear the conservative finance critic Pierre Pauly ever say this is just inflation. This is actually belongs to Justin Trudeau and his big spending. And he actually blames the Bank of Canada as well on that. And he's pointed out that the countries that engaged in massive stimulus spending and quantitative easing have the highest rates of inflation. What would your response be to that? Well, I think those are the countries that did the best job of countering the downside risk that everybody was facing. 
uh, read a book or two about the Great Depression in the 1930s and realize, you know, what was averted uh, when we went through this. Now that's a success story. Now on the other side of it, we need to create another success story. And I think the normalization part of inflation will go away on its own. Some things will still be there afterwards and the rate of inflation will sort itself out. If it is a little higher than target, then of course central banks will work to do their job as they always have. Which means raising rates. Uh, I asked Tiff Macken, the current Bank of Canada governor, a number of weeks ago, what transitory means, because transitory is starting to feel like a heck of a long time to most people in high inflation. He said transitory but not short-lived. <laughs> Can you, you're the former governor of the bank, translate that. Do people want to know, are my rates going to go up or does transitory mean I'm going to exist with 4.7% inflation for two more years? Well, transitory to an economist, that's code for something that will go away on its own eventually. It's not something that has a time frame. It's just temporary. Uh, and usually, uh, given that inflation is measured on a 12-month basis, that means that those transitory effects have to last at least 12 months. My expectation is that around the middle of next year, uh, these things will have washed out. Where will inflation be after that washout? Well, something perhaps around 2%, I don't know, a little above perhaps, but we have to wait for the transitory effects to work themselves out. That's just a matter of patience. But I think in terms of interest rates, if anybody thinks that we're gonna stay at zero interest rates and that's the permanent state of affairs, well, they should get over it. And the federal government is planning to spend another $100 billion plus over the next three years. There are calls for <clears throat> that, the government to stop it rethink that. It is, it is too much stimulus and we don't need it and it's driving inflation and other rises in costs of living. What's your view? Should the government on a fiscal side rethink its promised stimulus? Well first of all all the programs that were developed during, uh, during the COVID pandemic were what I called at the time elastic programs and what that meant was that they would be tapped by people who had been affected by the COVID pandemic and they would only tap it as long as they needed to tap it. When they went back to work, they would no longer tap it. And that's exactly why the entire program has spent far less money than originally set out right. as a kind of envelope. And that would definitely be true when we get a fiscal update. You will discover that the economy has been much stronger than expected, prices have been higher than expected, and so government revenues are gonna be much higher than put out in the last budget. I got one last one for you, uh, Gov, uh, which is this. If you, I, and I know you're on the monetary side, but now that you're free to opine on these things, uh, you, whatever the, the causes of inflation are, the political urgency of it is real. And you know that. The politics of inflation is incredibly corrosive to any government, whether they think it's their fault or not, they gotta do something. In your view, what is the most effective short-term uh, thing the federal government could do to help people deal with the rising uh, inflation issues facing them every day? Well, I think the housing side is one that is, looks likely to persist, Evan. And I think what they can do there is get all the levels of government together and figure out a list of things that they should be doing in order to promote supply of housing. Well, it is great to have you back here, um, former governor of the Bank of Canada, Stephen Polos. Thank you for your insight on, on an issue that is the top of mind for everyone. Really appreciate hearing your voice. It's my pleasure.
So a new COVID variant of concern is causing global convulsions in markets and in travels. Late Friday, Canada quickly banned foreign nationals from seven countries in Southern Africa from coming to Canada. Anyone from those seven countries who have arrived in the last two weeks need to get a test immediately in quarantine. Now there's a travel advisory to avoid travel to those seven Southern African countries. So far, the variant, though, has not been found in Canada, but the new mutation is being taken very seriously. And there's lots of questions. Will it reduce the immunity offered by vaccines? Will it cause a fifth wave? And how does this change the political debate about the end of the pandemic and what Canada must do? Try to answer all those questions. The scrum is here. Joyce Napier, CTV's Ottawa Bureau Chief, joins us. Marika Walsh, parliamentary reporter with the Globe and Mail, is here. And our special guest this round is the president of the Canadian Medical Association, Dr. Catherine Smart. Okay, good morning to everyone, uh, Dr. Smart. Um, You've left the Yukon for Ontario. That's good to see you traveling about. Travel is on the minds. Uh, this new variant of concern is a real issue. Uh, what can you tell Canadians who are concerned that the vaccines might not work or that we're, we're in the midst of a, uh, of a fifth wave? I think, you know, we're finding ourselves where we were concerned we might end up. We knew that there was a risk of new variants of concern emerging, especially with the lack of access to vaccination globally. Um, right now, this new variant of concern, it's unclear exactly what threat it poses to Canadians or to our system. But I think we're glad to see the government taking swift action because if we've learned anything through this pandemic, it's the importance of having strong public health measures to try to keep things in check. And this is going to be a really important thing to be monitoring here over the coming days and weeks. Marika, you, you, were, you were questioning the, the ministers uh, at that Friday conference about, like, is this enough? Is banning flights from seven countries, southern African countries, enough? Mm -hmm. How long is it going to be in place for? What do we know about the government's... Uh, policies and what are we watching for in terms of the impact on travel and borders? I think, Evan, we certainly saw them move faster on this case than we did maybe in past cases. So I think maybe some signs that they are learning on the need to act quickly on these kinds of measures. Dr. Tan made it very clear, and so did the federal ministers, that the travel measures are not exactly a foolproof way to stop the variant. Maybe it will slow it. If we're lucky, it won't come. But we know that the last few waves of the pandemic were fueled by other variants of the virus. And so they say they're monitoring for community spread in other countries to decide whether more travel bans are needed. Yeah, and Joyce, that's exactly right. We're drawn back in. So the new variant of concern comes in the midst of a debate where the Conservatives and the Bloc say get rid of the hybrid parliament. The NDP and the Liberals say no. There's a debate about vaccines for, for MPs and, and the authority to do that. Does this now begin to reshape another debate about the pandemic, pandemic supports, everything? Well, it certainly does reshape the uh, debate that's going on in Parliament right now. Uh, we've got two parties that want a return to, you know, just like before, 338 people sitting in the House of Commons, whereas the, the, the Liberals are saying it's, it's a little bit too early. Um, it, it has become, it's sort of a health debate, and it's also a political one, uh, with the Conservatives t saying that the Liberals just want to evade our scrutiny, right. uh, you know, when it's, uh, a, you know, sort of a half half of the, the MPs in Parliament, other half at home or in their offices. It isn't the same thing. Well, you know, hello to the 338 MPs. We are in a pandemic. Uh, the announcements on Friday by the Canadian government and, and indeed by the World Health Organization, I find them humbling. Uh, you know, we're thinking, well, this is behind us. You know, we've mm. got to start looking ahead. And, and, and yes, we should. Uh, but every time we try to look ahead, we get a surprise by this pandemic. 
Well, it's coming, Dr. Smart, and obviously you, you got to wonder how the healthcare system is preparing for a potential issue, and you can answer that. But it's interesting because I know you were beside ministers on Friday to talk about uh, two other big announcements about healthcare. One, 10-day paid sick leave for federally regulated workers. Federal government's trying to introduce that, and the legislation to protect healthcare workers uh, who are facing threats. Uh, and I don't know if a lot of Canadians know. Here you might be on the front lines again of, an, of a fifth wave, depending on what this variant does. What kind of threats are healthcare workers facing, Doc? You know, I think if the average Canadian knew what it was like for physicians and other healthcare professionals in terms of the threats we're receiving, they'd be really quite shocked. You know, they're ranging from everything from multiple death threats a day that some colleagues have received. These are coming in by a phone, fax, email, uh, to significant online harassment threats again daily um, and also in person people are being followed threatened at their clinics leaving and going from the hospital and this is not a rare occurrence it's actually happening multiple times a day for many physicians and other healthcare staff and it's happening across canada it's not just one region so the legislation that we learned about today was very welcome from our colleagues it's a necessary step to protect healthcare workers um, and as you said if, if we're into a fifth wave it's going to be even more important yeah, if we're into a, a fifth wave, Marika, and, and again, does this, as I asked Joyce, does it kind of recalibrate the political debate for provinces around 10-day paid sick leave, around protecting healthcare workers, because as Joyce and, and Dr. Smart were saying, all of a sudden, this thing's not going away, and we, you know, we're not into the recovery phase when we're shutting down travel from seven countries. Certainly, I think it underscores and amplifies the voices of people who have been championing these policies for quite some time now, Evan, for more than a year that this has been going on. And so it does certainly add to the pressure of this being needed and explains very clearly in everyday terms to Canadians why they might be needed here. So the question is, um, how bad does it get? We are at a much better point now than we were a year ago when we were looking at the second and third and fourth waves of this virus because we do have such high levels of vaccination. So we're not back to square one, but as you said, we're not out of the woods yet. And I think there will be also accountability questions, not just for Canada, but for the rest of the developed world, the rich countries that did keep the vaccines, as was mentioned at the top of the segment, for themselves first mm -hmm. and have been slow to donate and to ensure that other countries have it. And now we are in this position where it comes boomeranging back on us, as was warned by doctors. That's going to be the big issue, the continuous mutations. All right, well, we hope the healthcare workers are ready, and we hope this does not make its way to Canada. Dr. Smart, great to have you on the program talking about the new legislation and the new threat of the variant. So inflation is here, there's no secret. The big question, though, is what can the federal government actually do about it? Bank of Canada insists that consumer prices will eventually start to decrease sometime in 2022, but central bankers around the world remain concerned that inflation could become entrenched. Canada's inflation rate is the highest it's been in 18 years, 4.7%. Supply chains around the world remain a problem. And now you've got not only rising cases of COVID around the world, but this new variant that's detected. Will the problems become exacerbated? So can the federal government take steps in the near term to do anything? And what about the Conservatives who are blaming high inflation on liberal stimulus policies? To talk about the politics of inflation, Joyce Napier, CTV Ottawa Bureau Chief is back. So is Marika Walsh, reporter with The Globe and Mail. And our special guest this round is BNN Bloomberg anchor Amanda Lang. Okay, let's get to it, Amanda. Uh, 
you know the debate is furious in Parliament. You, the Conservatives are saying this is, quote, just inflation, and it's all due to the stimulus, and they got to start pulling back. The Liberals say, no, 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 this is a global inflation problem. What's your, what's your view of how to parse the debate? I mean, we know it's both global and domestic. Uh, we do know that fiscal spending through this pandemic in every country that's spent fiscally uh, has helped to stir some inflation, uh, but the price of oil is not set by Ottawa or controlled by Ottawa, and that's one of the big inflationary pressures. As we can see, though, it can come off fast as well. So to me, uh, the debate really, Evan, is and should be about affordability. That is a policy-related question. Inflation, of course, is something driven by markets well beyond any kind of policy control. So we got to get the, the actual debate right. And then I would come back to government spending was, we could say, necessary. Was, it, was there too much? Did too much stay permanent? That's where the debate should live. Yeah, okay, Joyce. The, the liberals would love to talk about affordability because they are putting, you know, childcare and housing in the window as their way to deal with it. And the conservatives are saying, yeah, but if you're making life more affordable, that's midterm to long term. But the power of your dollars going down because of inflation. Do do the liberals got to worry about the short term political and 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 cost of living impacts of inflation? Absolutely. Whether or not it is caused by this spending, the stimulus spending over the COVID period is irrelevant. You, you know that the political discourse is going to be things are more expensive. It's the fault of the Liberals. Uh, look, this is a gift to opposition parties. Uh, we know that. And obviously, you know, the, the, the discourse, the conversation out there is a little bit distorted. Uh, gasoline prices are what? Up 40 percent. Um, the price of food is going up and economists are saying will keep probably going up. Um, so is that a political problem for the Liberals? Absolutely. Whether or not it is caused by them doesn't matter. How challenging is it then, Marika, for them? What, can they survive on the answer, childcare and housing, and hope that it genuinely is transitory and, and it eventually kind of winds down, which there's no guarantee of that? They might hope that it's transitory, and I'm sure they do, but I think they need to start planning and preparing for backup plans, Evan, and we might see that as soon as the fall economic statement that we're still expecting to come in this parliament. The question is how, who is framing this debate and who is driving the understanding of this issue politically for Canadians? The Conservatives are trying really hard to make it a blame question. As Amanda mentioned, there's this focus now on stimulus spending and the role stimulus spending has played in inflation. But we've seen the Conservatives change their message, right? As you've pointed out in your, in your shows earlier this week, that the Conservatives have changed their messaging as they try and pin some of the blame on the Liberals, while the Liberals try to show that they are the ones actually coming forward with solutions to this issue. But in particular on housing, it's hard to see how that is going to be a near-term solution. On childcare, it might be because they say prices will start to go down next year. But the Conservatives are countering with right. this idea that that leaves out a whole lot of people who aren't families of young kids, who aren't parents, or who in, are in rental markets. So, you know, it's still a debate, I think, about where this lands. But clearly, from the first week of the House of Commons, we know economic issues and inflation are driving the agenda in Ottawa. And Amanda, Marika's right. I mean, the debate about what's causing it, whether it's stimulus spending, is a little politically tricky for the Conservatives because their fingerprints are all over uh, supporting a lot of these sure. pandemic measures. I mean, I'll just show you a clip. This is Aaron O'Toole on this program back in April actually telling us that he supports all the programs even ones that he knew had problems. Check this out. 
Well, as you know, we've supported all of the programs to help Canadians throughout the pandemic, Evan. In, in fact, some cases we, we voted in favour of getting money and support out to people even though we knew there were problems with the program and then we tried to fix them afterwards. So that's the past, though, Amanda. The question of the politics is, should this, given the inflation, does the federal government continue with their $100 billion spending? Is that the challenge for Christa Freeland now? Do they keep so stimulating? I think that is really going to be the question. And Evan, this is where actually there's a real opportunity here. For one thing, we can actually keep things, we, uh, you know, outside observers, the media, can keep things in perspective, which is this was not a Canada-made problem. The inflation is a global one, and it's a relative one, too. Canada's not the only country in the world feeling it, and we can take some solace in that politically. The government has cover there. But I'll tell you what would actually be the time to have a conversation about, and that is bringing in your deficit, bringing down your debt. This is the perfect time to do it. If what we're looking for, we talk about our central banks raising interest rates to try to cool inflation. Well, a really quick fix on inflation, on the other side of it, is the fiscal spending. They could actually try to right-size a little bit, and they have cover for it now. But, but Joyce, I have, this is not a government that has, uh, where someone says, oh, they're really well-known for, quote, reigning in the spending. Uh, no, and, and you know, we, we have to keep in mind one thing, I think, is that the, this pandemic is still extremely unpredictable. Um, where will we be even in a month from now? So we're having a debate about targeting spending now, scaling back some of that COVID aid uh, and, and, and sort of targeting it. But where do you target when we actually don't know where it's going? These variants... What's going to happen? What are they? It's very soon to tell. It's probably too soon to tell, but it is there. And the questions will be uh, this weekend, you know, how dangerous is it? We're not out of the woods all of a sudden. Lastly, to you, though, Marika, I just don't want to forget there's inflation issue and you and comment on that. But you got Buy American issues, America doubling the tariffs on our softwood lumber, hurting that. There's fears about American uh, attacks essentially on the auto industry with their tax credit on electric vehicles that are made in the U.S. So you got Buy American pressures, new variant pressures that Joyce and Amanda are talking about and inflation pressures. Absolutely. And all of it comes under this economic umbrella that is not perceived to be a strong suit of this government in terms of managing. And I think that's why we are seeing the opposition, not just the Conservatives, also the NDP, really pushing on these issues that they see as the government needing to answer to. To Amanda's point earlier about them having economic cover for reigning in spending, I think the problem for them is they don't have political cover. We just came out of an election where massive spending was on the table, was offered up, and we also know that the Liberals want to do these programs. They want to roll out childcare. They want to do a lot more on climate change, and they have used the framing of the need for economic stimulus to justify that spending. So I'm not sure how they then change that to still move ahead with that spending. All right, uh, I got to leave it there. Boy, uh, there is a lot of economic clouds in the horizon right now, but uh, that's why we have BNN Bloomberg's Amanda Lang here and Joyce Napier and Marika Welsh. Uh, thanks for joining us, uh, three of you. Uh, as always, great to see you. And thank all of you for joining us because that is question period for this week. I will see you tomorrow, Monday, on CTV's PowerPlay on CTV News Channel. But remember, hug your loved ones. It's a great privilege. And we will be back here in seven short days. Stay safe. Thank you.